Women are at a higher risk of iron deficiency because they lose iron through the menstrual cycle and they have higher needs because of that. I was in the, the fitness and the entertainment field. I paid a lot of attention to nutrition and yet I got iron deficiency. Like I was very focused on my diet. It wasn't only until I went plant-based that I started actually thinking about where I was getting certain nutrients. And that's really important, especially again with children, is that making sure that that iron you're eating is actually getting absorbed. So including sources of vitamin C in every meal to increase the absorption of iron, choosing sprouted or soaked grains and legumes to again, increase the bioavailability of iron. It also helps increase the bioavailability of zinc as well. My iron has been fine ever since, by the way. That's registered dietitian Whitney English. And this is episode 95 of the Proof Podcast. Howdy, friends. Hope you're doing well. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's awesome to be back here with you again for another episode. For new listeners, welcome for the first time. Thank you so much for finally joining us, nearly at 100 episodes. Took your time, but you're here. That's all that matters. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, physiotherapist, nutritionist, and currently writing a book on nutrition with Penguin, which with a bit of luck will be published later this year. I hope that all of you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful and conscious of the way that you live. That's what each of these episodes is all about. That's what I want to deliver, a non-judgmental, non-preachy space to talk about diet, to talk about being mindful of our decisions, and really an opportunity for me to sit down and bring you into the conversation with inspiring people from all over the world. Doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. Today is an episode that I've been very much looking forward to for a long time. A deep dive into plant-based nutrition during pregnancy, breastfeeding, and infancy with one half of the plant-based juniors team, Whitney English. Both Whitney and her partner, Alex, are registered dietitians, mothers to plant-based babies, and are super passionate about using evidence-based information to help plant-based families optimize their nutrition. What I love about their message is that it's inclusive. Whether you are a reducitarian, for example, cutting back on animal products, a pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan, or just curious, I am sure that you will find their information helpful. Honestly, I can tell you the reason I haven't touched this topic for the better part of two years or over two years is because I wanted to wait to do it with the right person, the right people. How we feed our kids is so important. And I really must say the content that Plant-Based Juniors put out, is it's incredible. And, and I truly believe that both Alex and Whitney are world leaders in this space. They're paving the way in this space of bringing evidence-based information 
specific to nutrition during pregnancy, breastfeeding, and infancy to the public. And while Alex unfortunately couldn't be with Whitney and I to to record this episode in Los Angeles, I plan to have both of them back on the show in future to explore their personal stories. So if this is a topic of interest, something that's very relevant to you in your life right now, I strongly suggest to grab a pen and paper and get comfy in a quiet spot. This is a very, very comprehensive conversation. That's enough from me. Time to hear from Whitney English, recorded in Venice Beach, Los Angeles. Friends, I'll see you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Whitney English, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I almost called you Whitney Houston then. <laughs> I'm not sure. People have done that before. <laughs> not quite as talented. <laughs> uh, uh, 
don't sell yourself too short. I'm sure uh, Not musically, by at the least. end of this podcast, <laughs> people may may think otherwise. Um, I certainly do. And that's that's one of the reasons that I've got you here today. I've been really looking forward to this. This is a, a, a very important topic, but also it can be a very divisive topic, I feel, and, and quite polarizing the you know, nutrition for our kids is is something that obviously everyone treats with great importance. And it, it's nice to to sit down today with a registered dietitian to to walk through everything that you're doing with plant based juniors with your partner, and just delve into some of these like fears and, and common questions that mothers, fathers that, that families have about changing their diet away from what is sort of the the norm in society. Sure. Yeah, it's it's easy, uh, I think, for adults to see the benefits of a plant-based jo- diet and jump right on board. But when it comes to our kids' health, we're a little bit more cautious. And so it's definitely an area that people need more education on. And we probably should just paint the picture. We're actually fortunate that this podcast is going ahead because I nearly got us locked out <laughs> of the... You like, did. Um, when Whitney turned up, at this uh, the Airbnb in Venice has a gate that locks behind us. So I walked out and looked behind us, but I was able to jump back over. So well, and the the benefits of a plant based diet were very evident in the fact <laughs> in your superhuman strength <laughs> jumping onto the roofs. So. No, it's um it's meant to be. <laughs> um, why don't we we sort of kick things off before we we go through your backstory? Why don't we kick things off by explaining what plant-based juniors is and I guess the, the sort of nutrition philosophy that underpins it and why you and, and Alex are really just so passionate about delivering and, and bringing this information to the public. So Plant-Based Juniors is a platform for parents and other professionals to educate them on the unique nutritional needs of pediatric plant-based nutrition because these do differ from the needs of an adult on a plant-based diet. Um, And then to translate that information into an easy, digestible, applicable format for parents so that nutrition can be uh, delicious and your kids will actually eat it because that's another barrier. What we can get an adult to eat isn't the same thing that we could get a child to eat. So that's really that's really the mission statement of Plant Based Juniors. And we started out with an Instagram channel and that started in early 2018 and rapidly grew, which I think is a testament to just how needed this information is. And from there, Alex and I branched out to doing ebooks, a blog, a YouTube channel, and a book coming to print, hopefully in about May 2021. And you guys but are writing that now. We are writing that now, right. What's that process been like? Um, it's been interesting. So Alex and I, we don't live in the same location. I'm here in Los Angeles, and she is in St. Louis. Alex is also due with her second baby in just about two weeks. And we signed the deal at the end of the year. So it's kind of been a crunch, crunch time. I'm going to be flying out there to shoot the photography because there will be about 50 recipes in the book with her about a month after she gives birth. Okay. So that's probably going to be the most challenging part of the process. Now you've got got kids of your own as well, right? Yes. So I have a son. He is 21 months old. His name's Caleb. And Alex's son, Vander, is about two and a half. Okay. Yeah. So the clan is growing. The clan is growing. And... (laughs) 
You know, we, we talk about our mission statement. It really started because Alex and I, we are these parents. We're, we're these people that you describe that are out there looking for um, credible information on plant-based diets for kids. And we just weren't finding a lot of it. The space was really lacking in evidence-based information that was provided by true nutrition experts, and that was current. So some of the resources that we found were outdated, um, or they were written by plant-based mommy bloggers who maybe don't have that nutritional credibility. And then some of it just isn't easily accessible. So Alex and I found ourselves just digging through piles of research to get answers to things that we would have expected to be very easy questions that should just be online that any plant-based parent can access. So that's kind of how Plant-Based Junior started. Alex was had a newborn and I was pregnant and we were both plant-based and we were friends from before, both dietitians. And we started just swapping information and questions and research. And so you wanted this information first and foremost for yourself yes. so that you had a healthy pregnancy, healthy child. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess I got a little bit ahead of the story. Um, Alex and I became friends about 10 years ago. We were both food bloggers. She was a vegetarian and a dietitian at the time. I was an entertainment reporter who ate six egg whites a day. And we both were blogging. And so we met at a bloggers conference. We stayed in touch over the years. I went back to school, got my master's degree, became a dietitian, became plant-based. And then we both had kids. And that's when we started uh, talking more about our fears, mm. which were the common ones that we hear from other parents. Yeah. I mean, and those fears are, I mean, they're genuine, they're valid concerns, right? Because yeah. Of course, you're going to be concerned about what you feed your child and, and changing from, from what's sort of just generally accepted in society and schools and what your parents have taught you and and, right. and all of a sudden being um, casted as someone just, you know, doing things differently. Yeah, yeah. It's Like I said, it's one thing to do something a little differently to yourself and risk your own health. And it's another thing to an infant who has no choice and in whom nutrient deficiencies could result in long-lasting, irreversible damage. So so I've got a question um, for you because we we see these headlines, you know, about vegan parents or a a vegan baby here (laughs) there, and it definitely always makes the the mainstream media like to, to run that as a headline. Had that those headlines and those sort of thoughts gone through your mind when you were initially pregnant and were you sort of questioning, is this, is this going to be safe for, for my child? Was that initially some fears that you may have had? A little bit. I will say with those, as, as a nutritional professional, when you actually dig into the situation and what happened with those, those vegan babies, the issue wasn't a vegan diet. It was a malnourished diet. It was a baby who was being starved of essential nutrients. So it wasn't the source of the nutrients. It was the fact that they weren't getting the nutrients. So these headlines are overblown, hyperbolic, and they're really describing poorly planned diets, not not an optimally planned mm-hmm. vegan diet. So yeah, those those definitely were startling. It was probably some of the, the news headlines and even other professionals suggesting that the diet, while potentially safe, maybe wasn't optimal or had a lot of potential pitfalls. And so making it not only seem potentially detrimental, but also extremely challenging. 
And I think that's something that plant-based parents face as well is they may go, okay, well, I guess I can do it safely, but this sounds so difficult. That's, I don't understand all I mean, that's only this. a couple of years ago, right, for you. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's still, I guess, a lot of the the information that's being shared by local doctors and absolutely to, to parents that are thinking about having a baby or... For, My for own pregnant. pediatrician is yeah. not exactly on board with a plant-based diet and okay. was one of the reasons that I... So what gave you the confidence then to go to you? You're hearing these people around you who are yeah. educated, they have degrees in, in medicine or nutrition and they're dietitians and whatnot. What gave you the confidence to go, okay, I hear that you're saying it's challenging, but I actually think it, it can be done without too much fuss and it can be done in a very healthy manner. Like what gave you yeah. that confidence? Uh, number one, science. At the end of the day, I'm an evidence-based dietitian, so... I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to go look it up and I'm going to read the research for myself and verify that it's accurate. And so when I really did start digging into the research, I I found that there were immense benefits during pregnancy, infancy, and that the majority of governmental bodies, I think all of them here in the U.S. and many abroad, do advocate vegan and vegetarian diets, appropriately planned vegan and vegetarian Mm -hmm. diets for all stages of life cycle and state that they're not only nutritionally adequate, but potentially beneficial for the prevention of numerous chronic diseases. So I kind of tuned out the noise on other professionals who maybe just weren't very well educated. And I find that happens a lot. A lot of people go with what they're told in in their classes or what is the uh, commonly accepted knowledge of the time and aren't really keeping up to date on the research. And Yeah, I guess before that sort of position statement, yeah. what was the, I mean, what was the consensus or it just hadn't been reviewed before then? There wasn't enough science? I'm not quite sure because it's actually been out for quite some time. They, they re-released the positions. And so that position statement was from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics the leading nutrition body in the United States. And that was released in 2006, the revised version, but other versions of it that said essentially the same thing have been out as early as like 2009, I believe. So as long as I've been studying nutrition. I I saw you emphasize the word appropriately planned. Um, I mean, really any diet, even in, in a diet with animal products needs to be appropriately planned for an infant, right? Exactly. For an infant, for, for anyone really. And, and we see that in the fact that the most common nutrient deficiency for children and adults alike is iron deficiency and rates of, of iron. And this is across the board. This is across the board. So that's what, yeah. So it's the most common nutrient deficiency across the board and rates are similar in adults. Um, for iron deficiency, whether they're omnivores or vegans and vegetarians. Um, Vegans and vegetarians do typically have lower serum levels of iron, but they don't have higher rates of iron deficiency. So that just goes to show that it's a poorly planned diet. Even people eating meat are still having iron deficiency. It's still the most common problem. And I guess, have you looked into the the sort of typical nutrition of a child in America. Like, what does that look like? Let's just start with what is happening across the board. The average child in America, what's, what is their health like? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because we're, we were primarily 
the conversation is primarily about the harms and nutrient deficiencies of a plant-based diet. What about the harms and nutrient deficiencies within a standard American diet? Well, a third of our children are overweight and obese. Type 2 diabetes, which is a uh, condition of lifestyle, we believe it's caused by dietary factors, lack of exercise, that is rapidly rising in children. Children as young as 10 years old are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I think one study put an estimate at the increase is about 5% per year. And we know that the earlier you get type 2 diabetes, the higher your risk of having diabetes-related complications and the lower your life expectancy. Of which cardiovascular disease is like the number one complication. Exactly. And you bring up cardiovascular disease. Plant-based children have been shown to have lower levels of cholesterol. And as we know, saturated fat, which is much higher in a in a omnivorous diet, is a risk factor for high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. And we also know that cardiovascular disease starts in childhood. So there was one study actually of infants under 12 months of age, and these were autopsies of children, I believe, that died in car accidents. 30% of them had fatty streaks in their aortas. Yeah. I've actually included, I've included this in my okay. book. Yeah. Isn't that shocking? I mean, it, like cardiovascular disease, we we kind of like to think of it as something that happens in our 40s or 50s mm-hmm. or, or whatnot, but it is such a progressive disease. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I believe even the health of the the mother during yeah. pregnancy can affect the the child's arteries when they're born. Yeah. yeah I, I went through that in the book. It's very interesting. There was, yeah. a, there was a great study, a Korean, the Korean War study. I'm mm. not sure if you've come across that, but it was kind of kind of one of the first studies brought this to the, to the forefront, this idea that cardiovascular disease can start earlier. They they did autopsies on American soldiers who mm. died in the Korean War from gunfire. You know, presumably healthy, fit men that were over there, you know, fighting for their country. And seventy odd percent of them, they were they were aged between, on average, I think it was seventeen to twenty something, early twenties. Seventy odd percent of them had already developed atherosclerosis to some extent, some severe. Wow. Um, so you're yeah, right. it's unbelievable. I mean, we're learning more and more, especially with like studies of the microbiome, about just how early on nutrition can have an effect. I mean, there are studies in mice showing that depleted microbiomes in in mice are carried down through the generations, even when diet is improved, like the grandchildren of of the mice will still have reduced microbiomes and it's incredible and some sort of impaired bacterial yeah, community. So it's crazy. And it just highlights the fact that nutrition is so important to begin, I mean, prior to conception. This sort of brings me, I guess, to 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 what I want to explore today. I want to I want to dive into uh, pregnancy and even before pregnancy, mm-hmm. important things for a woman in terms of nutrition and, and preparing the body for pregnancy. And then during pregnancy, infancy, some things maybe maybe after infancy when you're, you know, uh, toddler age, but also the, the nutritional requirements or things to focus on when breastfeeding. And maybe we can sort of work through this in chronological order. Um, of how <laughs> of how people sort of tend to experience it mm-hmm. in real life. So let's kick things off with 
pre-pregnancy, I guess. If someone's listening and they're they're not pregnant, but they're thinking about in the next few years having a baby, are there specific parts of their nutrition that they should be focusing on now? Definitely a few years in advance would be beneficial. Having optimal health status is going to be important for fertility, but really in the few months, probably leading up to when you're about to begin trying to get pregnant would be the time to really hone in on certain things. The good news is that by eating a plant-based diet, you're already probably doing almost all of the things that you should be doing. But there are a few things to keep in mind, especially if you're plant-based. The first one, actually, this is not especially if you're plant-based, this is the reverse, is that folate. Uh, folate, folic acid is incredibly important to prevent neural tube defects. This is really well-known information, which is why all women are are recommended to be taking 400 micrograms of folate or folic acid even prior to conceiving. So some bodies recommend that you start supplementing that about three months before you begin trying to get pregnant. Sure. Is there a, a difference between folic acid and folate in terms of what you would recommend? Yes. So, well, first I want to say that folate is actually very easy to obtain in the diet, especially for a plant-based diet. Uh, vegans typically have the highest intake of folate. Vegetarians have moderate intake and omnivores actually have the poorest folate intake. And that's because it's widespread in plants and predominantly in leafy greens. Folate is the natural the natural form of folate. <laughs> and that's what's found in, in plants. Folic acid is the synthetic um, nutrient. And Recent studies have begun to show that certain people with genetic variations of, of a certain gene called MTHFR do not properly metabolize folic acid. And so for those people, it's better to take a methylated form of folate, which is more comparable to the folate that we find in plants, although it can be more expensive. So it's debatable. I think if you know you have that genetic abnormality, then you definitely should seek out a methylated form of folate, but just making sure you're getting folate somewhere in the diet, whether that be through supplementation sure. or through a large intake of So just to clarify, plants. you're saying even, even though a plant-based woman would likely be getting more folate through her diet than an omnivorous woman, yes. they still should supplement on top? That's the recommendation. Yeah. And that's what we go by because really, even when you're eating what you think is an optimal diet, what you're actually eating on a daily basis can differ, especially in pregnancy. The first trimester with morning sickness, you may not might not even be able to touch a salad. So your yeah, safest sure. bet is really just to supplement with folate. And if you're concerned about the potential issues with folic acid, find a methylated yeah. methylated or plant-based folate source. And many prenatal vitamins have that now. Cool. So that's folate. So that's folate. Um, the next thing would be to check your iron levels. Again, we talked about iron is the most common nutrient deficiency. So really, really all women should just go get a physical before, before thinking about becoming pregnant and specifically have these things tested, have iron tested. Iron deficiency even before consumption, uh, conception has been linked to low birth weight, which sets babies up for a host of, of issues. Yeah. So even if even if it's corrected later, something's going on that's affecting probably the egg even prior to prior to fertilization. 
The other thing you want to get tested is vitamin D. Specifically, if you're trying to get pregnant, suboptimal vitamin D levels have been linked with infertility. And vitamin D um, is typically low in a plant-based diet, mainly because the main source is our fortified Mm. plant milk or, or seafood. So really- Particularly if you're not getting much sun as well. And if you're not getting much sun, I mean, you probably get a lot of vitamin D. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, Sydney, Sydney's a fairly similar climate, I guess, to here. Yeah, LA, so, we do as well. So not too too much trouble. Yeah. Um, I guess a little bit different to sort of people from Northern Europe or right. perhaps Melbourne. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> and that's really the issue is that even though we do have the ability to synthesize vitamin D and likely historically that's where we got it, modern society doesn't really... Most people are not getting the adequate sun exposure. Well, we wear clothes now. We wear clothes. Uh, We we wear sunscreen. We sit inside. (laughs) And yeah, different climates, different skin pigmentation, all of these things can affect your body's ability to Mm. synthesize vitamin vitamin D. I mean, vitamin D is a fairly prevalent deficiency as well. Correct, yeah. Behind iron, it also affects people that are eating all sorts of different dietary Absolutely. And so, again, I say like some of these things are things that you specifically want to look look for as a plant-based dieter. But really, again, all women who are thinking about being Mm. pregnant should look at these factors because a lot of people are deficient. What do you, you mentioned plant-based milk. So I I quite often recommend people consume plant-based milks that are like fortified with with calcium or vitamin D, B12, things -hmm. like that. Are you is that something that you also recommend? Yes, that that that's a must. I I both for children and for adults, it's an easy, highly concentrated source of many nutrients that that we. And so we'll probably get into that a little bit more with the toddlers, but soy, fortified soy and pea milk. That's what we recommend. Cool. Ripple. Um, have you had Ripple? I have. That's what my son drinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not a plug. I just that stuff. I got some in the fridge. You do? <laughs> they don't sell it in Australia yeah. and every um, time I come here. Yeah. So if someone's listening and wants to make that in Australia, I will definitely be a good customer. <laughs> Listen up, Ripple. Uh, that's interesting because it is a polarizing beverage. I, I feel like some people Ripple, that, either some love people. the flavor and some people Yeah. I love. I mean- I was first attracted to it by the nutrition, mm-hmm. um, but I must say the flavor is great, and the, the, yeah, it's, I think they've done a really good job. Yeah, in they terms have. of bringing something that's that that tastes, I can see kids would enjoy it, mm-hmm. and it has a lot of nutrition in it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it, this may have changed, but when we first started recommending plant-based milks for children, it was the only one that contained B12. Also, I believe it's the only one. If you get the original, that also has DHA. So yes. they're working really hard to. I think it has DHA. It's got calcium, mm-hmm. vitamin, vitamin D. D. I think uh, a little bit of vitamin A. Yeah, we'll come. Yeah. We'll circle back to this. Yeah. So, so, so much to talk about with plant-based milks. <laughs> we've got, we've <laughs> skipped ahead the kids and plant-based milks. Um, um, okay, so we've worked our way through folate. Uh, you've spoken about iron, vitamin D. Polyunsaturated fat is really important to optimize in the diet to improve fertility. And again, this is something that plant-based dieters probably are already doing, focusing mm. on nuts, seeds, vegetable oils, which can be controversial. You. Yeah, I mean, some of this is controversial. I mean, my stance and, and where I sort of sit on all this stuff is for, for some people, I don't necessarily think this the super low-fat plant-based diet is the best diet. You know, I I can see that there is science for certain diseases where clinical trials have shown it's effective. But to your point there, do you do you find that women in particular childbearing age, 
it's it's not so much about restricting fat. It's more the type of fat mm-hmm. that is most. We definitely do see that from the low-fat, whole-foods, plant-based community. And that's, that's a, a place where education is really important, especially, yes, for pregnancy, but especially for children. So I talked about earlier the unique nutritional needs of children. Children should be getting about 30 to 40% of their nutrient intake from fat. And that's really hard to achieve on a strict plant-based diet if you're not including vegetable oils. And like you just said, my personal position for adult nutrition is that vegetable oils absolutely can be a part Mm. of a healthy diet when consumed in moderation. Sure, avocados, nuts, and seeds, we want to include those as much as possible. But as far as the research goes, I think it generally supports the idea that vegetable oils are a nutritious component cool. of the diet. Okay, so uh, an emphasis on on polyunsaturated fats. Yes, and um, so the ones I just talk about, talked about were mainly the plant-based sources of the ALA, but it's also important to include DHA as well. So DHA is um, the omega-3 fatty acid. It's primarily found in seafood. Our bodies produce small amounts of it um, from alpha-linolenic acid, which is the omega-3 fatty acid found in plants, but that conversion rate is extremely low. Some studies estimate it's only about 1%. And DHA needs are incredibly ramped up in pregnancy, especially in the third trimester and then lasting throughout the first two years of life. And this is because DHA is an important component of the brain and the retina. So additionally, it's been shown to be beneficial for fertility. So I recommend, we recommend DHA supplementation uh, starting even before before you're pregnant, yeah. but carrying on throughout pregnancy, lactation, and then potentially even And that's true, like an algae, algae oil... Yes. Yeah. So, so most people think DHA, they think of fish, fish oil, but there are now products on the market that have algae oil sourced DHA. Mm -hmm. And this comes from microalgae, which is actually the original source of Mm -hmm. DHA in fish. Fish eat microalgae and they accumulate the DHA and EPA in their tissues. So essentially you're cutting out the middleman. You're getting that beneficial, those beneficial fatty acids without any potential environmental toxins. That's a great thing because they're they're able to do this sustainably away from the ocean so they can control the environment. They can make sure those heavy metals are not in there. Absolutely. Which are, which sort of, you know, bioaccumulate in mm-hmm. seafood. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health 
for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. You know, the research is pretty clear that eating eating fish does have does have benefits Absolutely. during pregnancy, but yeah. we have to weigh that against the, the pollution in our oceans, the bioaccumulation of these of these toxins that we know cause neurological damage. So they're especially dangerous for mm. developing fetus or a young child. Yeah, it's interesting because like across the board of science, you know, even away from from pregnancy, when you look at different diseases, the the science on fish is can be somewhat neutral. It can be positive in certain areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a number of factors. It could be the way that people are cooking the fish. Are they frying it? Are they baking it? But it could also be uh, the accumulation of toxins, where the fish has come from. Yeah. Um, so it is nice to know that you can get DHA directly Definitely. without having to take that risk if that's your choice. Yeah, absolutely. And then let's see. I... Another nutrient definitely to get tested for is is B12. Hopefully, all plant-based dieters are also supplementing with B12 already. There was actually a study that tested the B12 levels of vegans, vegetarians, and omnivores and found that many of them were deficient, including those who were taking prenatal vitamins with B12. Because there's not enough in it? Because there's not yeah. enough, probably. Yeah. Um, so it's... It's imperative for imperative for pregnant women, lactating women, and children to be taking it. But also, low B twelve levels have been shown to be associated with infertility and also with abnormalities in sperm. So it's also important for dad to be adequately supplementing as well. There you go, dads. So now, <laughs> dads should be taking B twelve anyway. <laughs> Don't put uh, all the weight on mom. You- <laughs> and, and the same thing exists there, I guess, with that gene mutation that you were talking about before with folate. Yes. In terms of the yeah. different types like this. So methylcobalamin, I believe, is for, for some people may not be able to convert cyanocobalamin. Yes. And it's it's not as well defined as as the issue with folic acid. So I 
that's not a recommendation mm. that I typically make. Okay. A lot of uh, experts actually recommend the cyanocobalamin form because it's been shown to be more stable and it has a lot of research you on it. We've gone back and forth. I, yeah. I, I think I I've think, definitely gone back and forth as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have an answer, unfortunately, at this time to what mm. to what's really ideal. I think again, some studies show that the cyanocobalamin form is more stable, more reliable because there's mm. such a breadth of information that's been put out on it, but. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of the supplements these days are now in the methyl form. I've kind of landed in this position of if you know you have the genetic mutation, take the methyl version. But then obviously you're doing your blood test, you'll be able to check how you're going. And then if you're you're taking cyanocobalamin and you are doing some blood tests, you again, you can monitor your levels. And if if it looks like it's dropping off, Mm -hmm. then maybe you're not converting it. Yeah, I like that Um, approach. (laughs) And at least that way it's, it's objective to you. And, you know, I kind of also realized that the cyanocobalamin version is much cheaper for exactly. people as well, like you said before. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would hate to have this be a roadblock to someone choosing yeah. a plant-based diet is that they're hearing this and they're going, I have to get this expensive DHA and I have to get methylated folate and methylated B12. And, you know, it starts to add up. So just knowing that if you're getting some form of these, of these, micronutrients, you are likely covering your needs. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to point out, because this can sort of be a controversial topic, is soy. You hear a lot, primarily from non-evidence-based practitioners, that soy can actually harm fertility or it's bad for women with infertility complications like PCOS. And the research is actually the opposite. There are some studies that have shown that um, one study in particular showed a 77% increased chance of a live birth with a high soy consumption for women that were undergoing IVF and also I think reduced rates of PCOS with with soy consumption. So I just want to alleviate any fears for especially plant-based dieters who who consider probably hopefully consider soy a a large part of their diet that it's not only safe but it's also and probably so that's beneficial. uh soy milk tofu. That's the thing they really don't break it down. Yeah. A lot of these studies, you know, they're food frequency questionnaires and they don't they don't end up diversifying the different food groups. So it's really just soy food intake in general that that yeah. we're looking at almost any of the time when we're talking about soy. Yeah. I mean, I think the general consensus now from an evidence-based point of view is that soy is beneficial. It's providing a lot of important nutrients and that any any sort of suggestions of harm are, are really based on very weak science, which is yeah, weak an- very, animal, outdated yeah. animal, trials. and it's very much outnumbered. Mm-hmm. It's outnumbered in terms of more quality science, but unfortunately, because soy is the sort of whipping boy, it, it probably it's a bit of a false equivalence because you go out on all the blogs and you see mm-hmm. all of these blogs tearing soy down, and it makes it feel like okay, there's evidence on both sides. Yeah, when you know, I know, it, for example, kind of like when people didn't believe in climate change, right? Yeah, well, that's it. Um, you know, the I know speaking, I guess, from the Australian side of things, the the Australian Cancer Council Association. I mean, they they openly in their position statement recommend for soy consumption as part mm-hmm. of a healthy diet that has predominance of plant based foods. So, mm-hmm. I think that information is starting now to to come to light. Hopefully, people are, are placing a bit more trust in soy and. And, uh, you know, opting for, for high-quality soy if they can, products. Yeah. And like any food, just putting it into a diet that is diversified and 
you know, not just one food. Exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. <laughs> cool. So that's that's uh, the the sort of leading into pregnancy and pregnancy, both of those. Or we talked a little bit yeah. about pregnancy too, and. Again, most of the things that are beneficial for fertility are also going to be beneficial for pregnancy. There are a couple couple new things that we could talk about, though, related to pregnancy. I didn't mention a prenatal vitamin. That's, again, to cover your bases. It's definitely something that we recommend when you begin trying to get pregnant, but also it's completely essential once you are pregnant. One of the main reasons is iron. Again, we'll, we'll talk about iron a lot today, but iron needs are incredibly increased during pregnancy. Mm. Women need about 27 milligrams a day, which is a huge amount. Why, why do you think iron deficiency is so prevalent? Is it, what's, what's, is the sort of root cause of that? Why, do, why, are, why are we having such a difficulty with it? <laughs> I'm put putting on, you on the put spot Put me on there. the spot <laughs> to could come up with a theory here. Um, well, I mean, I just think that if it's something that all, you know, a large percentage of people, yeah. whether, no matter what dietary pattern they, they're eating, they're, they're having an issue with it. And, and I do get messages all the time from people mm-hmm. that, are, that are not vegan, um, people that are vegan. Yeah. Ma- they're mainly women, to be honest, yeah. that have had iron issues for many years. Potentially a lack of high quality foods and a lack of nutritional knowledge, women tend to be, women are at a higher risk of iron deficiency, one, because they lose iron through the menstrual cycle and they have higher needs because of that. But another thing, I think we do see a lot of women, I'm being a little bit stereotypical now, but that don't eat meat. And so actually I had iron deficiency long before I went, I became plant-based. My iron has been fine ever since, by the way. But when you uh, things like chicken and fish and eggs are not very good sources of iron. So really the best source of iron on an omnivorous diet is meat. So if you're not eating meat, you may think you're getting iron because it just wouldn't come to mind since you're not alerted about it like you are on a plant-based mm-hmm. diet. Um, yeah, well, I mean, but when you can easily become deficient. When you're eating an, an omnivorous diet, you're not really thinking about your nutrients. You're not really thinking about much, are you? <laughs> um, that's harsh. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I, I should say when I was eating an omnivorous diet, I was just going through the motions. Yeah. I never stopped to think about, am I getting this, 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 and this, or am I getting too much of something? Yeah. It was, it wasn't on my radar. I mean, I think that, and I think that is because the recommendations indicate that you will get everything you need as long as you eat these types of foods and that you don't need to focus on them as much. Same. I was in, I was in the the fitness and the entertainment field. I paid a lot of attention to nutrition and yet I got iron deficiency. Like I was Mm. very focused on my diet. Um, It wasn't only until I went plant-based that I started actually thinking about where I was getting certain nutrients. So yeah, I think a lot of people that are on omnivorous diets actually aren't eating a lot of iron. They're not worried about it because they think all animals have iron. And then on the other side, people eating a plant-based diet, they may think they're getting iron because they're eating lots of nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, but they're not taking consideration of the reduced bioavailability of, of iron in a plant-based diet. And that's really important, especially, again, as we'll talk about with children, is that making sure that that iron you're eating is actually getting absorbed. So including sources of vitamin C in every meal to increase the absorption of iron, choosing sprouted or soaked grains and legumes to, again, increase the bioavailability of iron. It also helps increase the bioavailability of zinc as well. So 
lack of education in both cases, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Maybe maybe some changes in microbiome or something that we haven't yet discovered. That's possible. Something in the environment. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's just yeah. not appropriately planning. And we see it we see it worldwide too in a lot of malnourished populations. Yeah, um, sure. So populations again that probably can't afford animal products or meat mm. that are eating um by default eating plant-based diets but definitely don't have the information or the resources to to figure out that if you're going to get all of your iron from these sources then you need to make sure you're taking steps to properly absorb yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just so we're clear, you're not recommending meat, you're saying no. it is a it is, you know, uh a good source of iron, but it's coming with a whole lot yes. of other things. Correct. If you're going to remove it, to get those benefits of removing meat, you need to focus and appropriately plan the diet. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, meat's a good source of various things. Does it mean it's a good food? Does it mean that it's healthful? No. We're talking about nutrients. And as long as you're getting those nutrients and you're absorbing those nutrients, then let's aim for the best source possible to get them from. And that's, again, a common misconception across the board about meat and iron, specifically in pregnancy. You hear a lot of practitioners or pseudoscience um, influencers spouting off about how red meat improves fertility in it. And it really doesn't. Yeah, it's good. It's a good source of iron. We can say that. But yeah. there are a lot of other factors that are going to impair fertility. It's it's almost like Chinese whispers. It gets It just goes from one person to the next and to the next until it just seems like it's the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hear all the time from women who fall pregnant who message me and say, I went to my doctor, they said, add in red meat a couple mm-hmm. times a week and fish. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Which is why you're here today. Yeah. So now I can just <laughs> yeah. send them this yeah. link. There's no, <laughs> there's no science to support that. I, I had another dietitian actually that reached out to me that had been trying to get pregnant for a long time. And she's she was uh, predominantly plant-based and she had been getting a lot of pressure from family as well as her OBGYN telling her that maybe she just needed to start including me and then she would get pregnant. And I I reassured her that there was no evidence behind that recommendation and to stay strong, focus on these other aspects of fertility that are really important. She got pregnant. And, you know, that's an anecdote, but but still, I th- it's very common that that women hear this. So these these sort of other aspects of fertility that you're talking about is just dialing in on those nutrients of focus, I guess. Exactly. Making sure that you are getting enough of, the, of, of everything and absorbing. Yes, exactly. The new, those nutrients. Exactly. Cool. And, you know, we touched on male fertility too, and, and it's really important that, that men are eating a proper diet as well. Red meat intake, processed meat intake, and saturated fat have actually all been linked with decreased fertility for men. Wow. There you go. Yeah. And erectile dysfunction, probably, which is a, an early sign of cardiovascular disease. So you, you need that yeah. to make babies too. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, cool. So anything, um, yeah, anything okay. else so during the... Prenatal, you're going to want to continue to be taking DHA from yep. an algae oil source. An interesting thing to note that I don't think a lot of people know about is that only preformed DHA, so dietary DHA, actually reaches the fetus or reaches a breastfeeding infant. So studies have shown that increasing ALA, the plant-based sorts of omega-3 fatty acids in the diet does not increase the level of DHA that's going to reach your infant. And in fact, vegan mothers have been shown to have the lowest levels of DHA 
so it's really important that you're getting that pre preformed DHA from a supplement. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Pregnancy Association both recommend about 200 to 300 milligrams per day. But some emerging research has shown increased benefits, especially for preventing low birth weight or preterm birth with higher amounts, um, around 600 milligrams. So we typically recommend anywhere between 400 and 600 milligrams. And, and you're going to uh, continue that once the baby's born and you're breastfeeding? Yes. Yeah. So again, during breastfeeding, those same groups recommend continued some supplementation. And this is if you're not eating fish. So probably everybody we're talking to yeah, right sure. now. So just I, so everyone's clear, what we're talking about is the the DHA microalgae oil. Yes. Making sure that you're supplementing that through pregnancy. You said sort of 300 milligram. I said, yeah, the recommended amount is about 200 to 300 uh, milligrams during pregnancy and 300 milligrams during breastfeeding, but higher amounts have been shown to have benefits both during pregnancy and especially for preterm birth. How high are we talking? Like still less than like, like one six, gram? Yeah, like 600 milligrams okay. a day some of the studies have cool. shown. So, And you can find that like recommend. Um, around the world now. It's online everywhere. It's, it's available everywhere. Cool. So that sort of takes us, I guess, to infancy and, and breastfeeding, right? I have a couple more things to mention. Well, I've jumped ahead. Let's go back. <laughs> and, uh, we've got we rewind. We've got a a good good few. There's out. a lot to know. There's a lot to cover here. But again, it doesn't have to be difficult. I mean, we're really talking about taking a prenatal, mm. taking a DHA supplement, and then the next few things I'm going to talk about are dietary. So one of them is choline. Choline is not considered an essential micronutrient, but it's a B vitamin like. Nutrient. It's really important again for baby's brain development. And it is found in many different plant foods, but in a much lower amount than in some animal foods. So that's why it is often considered a nutrient of importance for plant based dieters to focus on. And it's also been the subject of a lot of alarming reports in the media in recent years. The good news is that soy is a very rich source of choline. So my recommendation is basically if you're if you're vegetarian to be including about two eggs a day. If you're not to be including at least two two servings of soy foods a day, um, and that during pregnancy you should probably be supplementing with about half of the RDA of choline. And many prenatal vitamins do now include choline, but it's in pretty low amounts. So either paying very specific attention to the choline in your diet mm-hmm. and including sources like soy at least a couple of times a day or supplementing is the recommended cool. way to go. That Yeah, I remember that because it was, it was headlines last year about choline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was quite controversial. The, the interesting thing that, that when I looked into it was that, and I'm definitely saying, I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying don't supplement. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. We probably don't have enough information, so it's probably wise to supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the interesting thing when I looked into it was you would expect some of, some of the diseases or like neural tube defects that might come from a choline deficiency, mm-hmm. you'd expect to be higher in vegan women, but the, we haven't seen that play out. So I think it's a sensible and good recommendation to do the supplementing, but I don't want to alarm people listening yeah. to sort of suggest that, you know, there is a, a huge issue with vegan women and choline deficiency and yeah, tube defects. And definitely like is not. There's there's no research showing 
on, on specifically on vegans and choline intake. And in fact, research shows that most people are not getting the adequate amount of choline. To add to that, all of all of the recent studies, or at least the majority of the recent studies on choline that I've seen, have been funded by the egg board. Mm. Eggs yeah. are one of the best sources of choline in in the diet, or one of the highest sources of choline in the diet. Yeah, it's so real, it's hard to know. It's, it's a <laughs> nutrient that we need more information on. Yeah, even the first, the, well, the, the main study that was used to set the adequate intake level, mm-hmm. all they did was compare four hundred and fifty milligrams to fifty. So there was only two groups. The ones with 50 had some side effects. Mm -hmm. The ones at 450 didn't. And it got set, I think, around that 450, 500 level, Mm -hmm. right? But there was nothing in between. Yeah. So really what is the the amount that someone needs to to be healthy um, is still up in the air. And I believe it's it's an adequate intake level, right? I don't think it actually is an RDI. Yeah, it's an AI. Yeah. Mm Yeah, and that's um, especially when it comes to kids' nutrition. That's something you have to keep in mind. Is that a lot of our nutrient recommendations were not set on set based on actual studies in children. They were extrapolated from research that was done on adults, and then they figured out based on body weight. Yeah. yeah, so it's tough to say. And like like you said with choline too, choline deficient actual choline deficiency is very rare. It's mostly associated in adults with liver dysfunction. Yeah. yeah. I think I think the sensible approach is just to make sure that you are getting an adequate intake in the diet, and then with like with the rest of the similar to the rest of the micronutrients, if you're including a little bit to get that extra boost to cover anything you don't meet yeah, in your diet, just sensible. to meet the AI, that's probably the yeah I agree. best way to go. Actually, I'm not you know what I I'm not sure if it is an RDA or an AI. I know for children it's an AI. Yeah, it may be an RDA for adults. Okay, we'll look that up later. Yeah, I'll put uh, that in the show notes. Put that in the show notes. I think. Well, in Australia, I think it's a it's an adequate intake. Okay, maybe different here. Okay, uh, the next thing I want to mention is calcium intake. Uh, calcium needs are not the RDA for calcium is not increased during pregnancy, and that's because our bodies do absorb more calcium during pregnancy. But it's really important that pregnant women focus on getting adequate sources of calcium in the diet because if you don't, the baby will then start leaching, your body will start leaching calcium from your bones to give to the baby. So that's really what it does with a lot of nutrients is that it's going to try to make sure the baby gets it and then you're going to, you're going to suffer. So how do you recommend that the mother gets enough calcium? So consuming good sources of calcium throughout the diet, things like cruciferous vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, but also including fortified foods, because this is another area where I think we think we're getting adequate calcium intake, but really if you sat there and did a daily log without fortified foods, it's a lot more challenging. And especially during pregnancy, again, when you're going to have these food aversions early on and may not be including cruciferous vegetables. Yeah, several times sure. a day. In your so, diet. so the plant-based milks, plant-based uh, milks, tofu, mm-hmm. things like that. Exactly. Yeah, because calcium is not in not in a large amount in prenatals. Sure. And that's because you, it you have like a, a supplement or a nutrient kind of guide. Is that for the for children or is that also? Yeah. For- so on our on the link in our bio on our Instagram channel, you can download our supplement guide, and it has a brief explanation of each of the different nutrients of importance. And our favorite supplements for both infants and pregnant cool. women. I'll put that in the show notes. So if you're listening and you're thinking this is a lot to take in, yeah, it's okay. 
you, yeah, you, and, you'll have a resource to come back to. Yes. And in both in our pregnancy, our ebook e- pregnancy guide, as well as um, the book we're writing right now, we're going to have really easy, quick guides in the back where it just lists each thing, how much you need or where you can find it mm. so that you don't have to kind of go back through and canvas all over yeah, all cool. this information and piece it together. Yeah. I mean, it is a bit to learn. I think there is a, there's a, definitely an investment uh, in time required to get across this. But once you understand this stuff and you start changing the way you're eating, what you're buying, and it becomes into a habit, mm-hmm. it, it becomes second nature. Absolutely. And you might need to, you know, read ahead of different stages. So while you're pregnant, read about what you're going to change when you're breastfeeding or when your kid goes from four months to start eating, eating solids and things like that. But I feel like all of this stuff, particularly with the way that you're putting information out, it it is quite palatable and easy for people to pick up. Yeah, definitely. And like we said before, it it's there's always something to learn regardless what diet you're on. When you become pregnant, there are certain things that you need to start doing differently. So you're going to have to learn about these things one way or another. And the health benefits that come with a plant-based diet vastly outweigh the little bit of information you're going to have to absorb. I think that's what you need to keep reminding yourself as you're going through this is that it might seem like, oh, you're having to be really careful, but you're actually you're moving to a, a dietary pattern that is so much healthier mm-hmm. for yourself, yeah. for your baby. Absolutely. Like, sure, you could eat a ton of red meat and drink three cups of dairy a day during your pregnancy, and then you're not going to have to worry about calcium mm-hmm. and iron it's at gonna all. It's going to increase your risk of gestational <laughs> diabetes. Exactly. Um, Preeclampsia. Yeah. Um, there, I, we haven't even gotten into that yet, but uh, the benefits of a plant-based pregnancy. Some research has shown lower rates of cesarean section, lower rates of neonatal and maternal m- mortality, lower rates of postpartum depression, and definitely trends for lower risk of gestational diabetes and other pregnancy-related complications. So, so there's benefits it, there. There's, the of, of taking trade-off it. is huge. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So anything else? through pregnancy? The last thing I want to mention just is is protein and extra calories. You know, we hear protein is pushed, in, again, in all diets, um, and people who aren't well-versed on a plant-based diet are worried about it, but protein needs are easily met. It's just important that pregnant plant-based women, or all, all, all women, understand that you need about 25 grams more protein per day, which is not a lot. So the the RDA for pregnancy is, I believe, 71 grams. Um, So just knowing that you need a little bit more, and that can easily be met by an extra serving, an extra one to two servings of of beans or or Mm. tofu or some other protein-rich food. I should have asked, I've just thought of something. I mean, everything we're talking about now, is that sort of, does that cover all three trimesters? Is there any differences between the trimesters? I know, like, I think... Is it, which trimester is it where the the amount of total calories sort of goes up? Is that yeah. the last trimester? It's it's actually the second, second trimester. Second trimester. Yeah. So things change a little bit. Most of the micronutrient needs are are pretty steady. Or if there's differences, it's not something that people really need to know about. Um, it's really knowing that DHA increases in the third trimester. However, you should probably be taking that again. If you're taking the 300 milligram, you're, you're covered cu- the whole way through. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So just physiologically, if you if you want to know that the needs do ramp up there. But basically during the first trimester, your caloric needs are are not increased. The baby is not big enough to be needing that that much energy. Uh, but the second so trimester you can't use the first trimester as 
excuse, <laughs> as an excuse to go buck wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, you know, I, I feel it out. Feel it out. I, I, in for all dietary patterns and life stages, I always recommend that people listen to their hunger and fullness cues versus mm-hmm. worrying about a caloric intake anyway. Yeah. So. I if agree. you're pregnant and you're hungry, go ahead and mm. eat. Try try Your to choose tiny. high quality sources. Exactly. So yeah, you need 340 calories more um, during the second trimester and 450 more during the third trimester, which is less than what people maybe originally think, especially if you've heard the recommendations that you're eating for two. Yeah. Not the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's that? Like another small meal a day? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Couple snacks, um, maybe just a little bit bigger portions at your meals than you would have had before too. Mm. Cool. And that wraps it up. Let's let's go into infancy. And we can we'll probably talk about breastfeeding in this and 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 then we can talk both from an infant point of view, but also the mother's nutrition if the, in terms of continuing to supplement mm-hmm. and things like that. So what changes other than the obvious after you have a baby? <laughs> Um, and you're, you're exhausted. You're You're not getting any sleep. That's what changes. (laughs) Um, You don't have time to go to the kitchen to make yourself food. Um, I'm sorry. I'm pointing a very grim portrait. So let's, let's go through the, the nutrition for the child. Okay. Um, so breast milk is, is considered gold standard, right? Yes. Yeah. So breast milk is the ideal first food for babies. It has the perfect composition of nutrients, immunological factors, bioactive compounds. It actually has bacteria, microbiota in there that are going to start to colonize the baby's digestive tract, as well as prebiotic sugars known as human milk oligosaccharides, which really have not been recreated and added to formula mm. yet. And these are well, what they tried feed to, that. Right? They tried to. I believe one brand might have yeah. a very small amount, but I think it's just a marketing ploy. So they have not scaled that yet. Formula is getting better and better, though. As mm. The more they learn about the beneficial components about breast milk, the more they try to mimic it in infant formula. But breast milk, aside from just the unique components, it also changes throughout breastfeeding. So the composition of, of, of the fat um, changes even within one feeding. It's Breast milk is lower in fat in the beginning of the feed and higher in fat in the end. Um, That's it hard to mimic in a formula. Yeah, so a formula is always the same, and the breast milk is const- is very dynamic. It's constantly changing to meet the unique needs of an infant. So it's like you said, it's the gold standard. There are numerous benefits associated with breastfeeding. First of all, for the mom, re- reduced risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So we see a 26% reduced risk of breast cancer in some studies and a 37% a reduced risk of ovarian cancer. Um, it's also- interesting, isn't it? It is. I wonder what Very the mechanism is there at play. I know there are theories, uh, but I am not well-versed on them. Okay, um, we can leave that. Yeah, and they and I believe they are they are just theories. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. For infants, we see a reduced risk of infections, primarily ear, nose, and throat. Um, we see a reduced risk of obesity in children later in life. And again, this is something that experts don't know for sure what the reasoning is, but there are a couple of things that are proposed. One of them is that breastfed infants might have a better regulation of their of their intake, um, their hunger and satiety cues, not only because they actually are responsible for 
taking in their nourishment versus someone else Mm -hmm. feeding them, but also because um, they've seen different hormone changes in infants who are breastfed versus formula fed. So breastfed infants typically have higher levels of leptin, which is the satiety hormone, where formula fed infants have had higher, have higher levels of ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. Very interesting. Yes. I mean, this is slightly different, but there was a, a metabolic ward study last year or two years ago by a researcher called Kevin Hall. Hmm. And he he looked at a these were adults, by the way, um, not babies. They wouldn't do this with babies. Um, they, they 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 it was a crossover study, so they had people follow a diet for four weeks, monitor them, follow another diet for four weeks, and they did it in random order. So some some did diet A and then diet B, some did diet B and then diet A, and and one diet was uh, an unprocessed whole food diet and the other was an ultra processed diet. But what they what was interesting was they matched fat, protein, fiber, mm. carbohydrates, everything, salt, sugar, all of these different components. And they gave this food to them in a in a manner where they just said, look, eat until you're satisfied. So they matched all these macronutrients, which you'd think uh, would explain maybe why someone would eat more of, say, a processed food because you'd go, okay, there's less fiber, they weren't as full, but they matched this stuff. Wow. And even still, with with all of these macronutrients matched and salt and sugar, they ate on average 500 calories more a day, more a day from the ultra-processed food compared to the food that was the natural source wow. of calories. That's very and interesting. Again, yeah, because conclusion- what you usually hear with the ultra-processed food is it's this perfectly derived combination of sugar and salt and fat mm. that drives that. Mm. Yeah, so they sort of concluded, though, back to your point, that they believe that there's some, there was something in that ultra-processed food which was causing a different hormonal response. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that as much as we, we try, we can't completely mimic nature. Right. You know, there's going to be innate differences. So, yeah, another another thing for um, why infants potentially formula fed infants potentially have higher rates of obesity and diabetes, and this this is more of a theory, uh, is that breastfed infants have a greater exposure to different flavors. Anything mom eats, that flavor is transferred during the breast milk in, into the breast milk. So, just like the, the nutrient composition changes, the flavor is constantly changing. So this potentially sets children up for more adventurous eating um, because we know that early exposure to a variety of flavors promotes more acceptability to different types of foods. For instance, they did a study on pregnant women. Flavor exposure actually begins in utero in the amniotic wow. fluid. So what mom eats, um, those flavor compounds are actually in the amniotic fluid. And they did a study where pregnant women ate a lot of carrots in the last trimester. Some of them did. Some of them were the control group. And the babies to the moms who ate a lot of carrots had a greater acceptability of carrots when they started infant feeding. Wow. Moral of the story, you want your kids to eat fruit and veg? Starts <laughs> you, early. You got to do it and you got to start early. <laughs> you got to right? lead by example. <laughs> exactly. And we see that across the board. <laughs> so research also shows a reduced risk of certain childhood cancers, a reduced risk of sudden infant death syndrome, and potentially cognitive benefits from breastfeeding. Although there are confounding issues with the intelligence studies based on what a mother's intelligence is. So it's it's hard to draw from conclusion about that. Sure. And I guess 
it's not always an option for some for some others to to be able to breastfeed for any number of reasons. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why my partner Alex and I we you may have heard the saying breast is best. We actually like to say that fed is best. As long as your child is getting nutrients, the the essential nutrients that they need from somewhere, they are going to ha- be completely fine, healthy, and have a nutritionally adequate diet. Because like you said, not all women can breastfeed. It's very stigmatized in the population that women should breastfeed. And if they don't, that it, it was their choice. And it's it's not always a choice. It's mm-hmm. there's physical components. There's emotional components. Sometimes societal pressures get in the way. Maybe they don't have the support they need. Maybe they have to go back to work within a few yeah, weeks sure. of birth. There's there's so many different factors as to whether or not a woman breastfeeds and we want to just support mothers no matter what feeding decision that they make. With that said, I want to add the fact that all of these studies on the benefits of breastfeeding have actually shown that the benefits do persist even when it's not exclusive breastfeeding. So any little bit of breastfeeding you can do, whether that includes some supplementation with formula, whether it's only for a few months, that is going to be that's going to be better than than no breastfeeding at all. Cool. Fortunately, there are other options yes. to, to help women who are either physiologically unable to produce enough milk, uh, or like you said, perhaps their social circumstances don't allow for it. And so let's go through some of these options, donor milk formula, where they come in and how people can navigate through it. Absolutely. So donor milk, you mentioned, is a great option. It is recommended that you go through the proper channels to obtain donor milk. The Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine discourages getting getting donor milk um, from online sources. And this is mainly because the milk has not been tested and you have no idea what kind of storage or food safety procedures have been taken with the milk. That said, you can always ask a donor mother if they can provide you with a blood test to make sure that they don't have any diseases. You can also home pasteurize donor milk. And there are protocols that you can find online or in our uh, pregnancy guide. We also list home pasteurization techniques. That is one option. And I should say, actually, because my mom will will kill me if I don't. She's a lactation consultant. Oh. And uh, a nurse. So <laughs> Should have her, her come on here and talk well, about the benefits of breast milk. Well, I mean, while we were talking about breast milk, I mean, if we're talking about from a physiological supply point of view, there are resources out there as well to help mothers navigate through that and, mm-hmm. and work with, you know, the way the, the baby's latching and um, don't worry, I've heard all about <laughs> There's, I mean, talk about a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. Like there are long, long books on breastfeeding. That it's it's something that you would think should be so innate and natural, and yet there is a steep learning curve. Yeah, um, and sure. I think in our modern day society, we don't always have those older women in our lives who are teaching us how to breastfeed. So lactation consultants are are essential, I think, for success. I saw a number of them <laughs> in my breastfeeding journey. Yeah, so there, there is some support out there. Yes. Um, so you've got breast milk being the, the sort of gold standard, but fed is best in making sure that they're getting enough calories, like you said, and nutrients, no matter what, is most important. Yes. Um, donor milk as, as an option, but making sure you're probably doing a bit of due diligence and getting it from the right source, if possible, mm-hmm. doing your homework there. And donor milk, obviously, being 
uh, very important for preterm infants. I guess if someone had an oversupply to try and donate yes. um, yeah. your, your own breast milk for, for other babies if you can. And and we talked about this off camera, offline, but never trying to sell your breast milk yeah. is a major faux pas, <laughs> morally, ethically, everything. Um, yeah, I actually, I actually donated a lot of breast milk online. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can do some Googling, find someone local and you know, help those in the community that might need it. Yeah, turn to friends. You can look at your church, at breastfeeding support groups. There, there are resources out there. Cool. So if breast milk's not an option, donor milk's not an option, I guess then we landed at formula. And there are different types of formula uh, on the market. There's you know, various brands. We don't need to go into brands. We keep this sort of high level because they tend to differ market to market mm-hmm. anyway. But what's your what's your advice from a formula point of view? How does it differ a from from breast milk? Are there, are there mm-hmm. any considerations that we need to think of there in terms of the child's nutrition? And how do, how does one sort of make a choice between say a a plant based formula and a dairy formula? So one of the good things about formula is that it actually contains all of the essential micronutrients that infants need. So if you're providing formula, you can be assured that your child is getting everything that they need. Aside from DHA, some formulas don't have it. Uh, This is less of a concern, though. In recent times, I believe all of the formulas in the U.S. actually do have DHA. So that would be the only only thing to consider. For breastfeeding, however, while breast milk is the ideal perfect food for babies— there is one nutrient that you need to watch out for specifically, and that's vitamin D. Breast milk is very low in vitamin D, and that's regardless of intake. So even though you're taking, you may be taking a postnatal vitamin with the RDA of vitamin D, it is not transferred over in an adequate amount for babies. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all exclusively breastfed babies receive a supplement of 400 IUs of vitamin D starting at birth. That's through a dropper. And that's through a dropper, yeah. So you can just put that on your finger and stick it in the infant's mouth or put it directly in their mouth. I will say there are some studies showing that very high amounts of vitamin D, around 6,400 IUs, um, if the mother supplements with that much, an adequate amount can be transferred in the breast milk. However, that exceeds the upper tolerable level for vitamin D for a lactating woman. So Mm. it just makes more sense, uh, we believe, to directly supplement your infant. Sure. And that's that's a that recommendation for an exclusively breastfed infant to to be given a, a vitamin D supplement is across the board. That's yes, for all that's dietary for all patterns. dietary patterns. Sure, mm-hmm. gotcha. and that and that's yes because of the low level in breast milk. Another nutrient to um, be cognizant of is is iron. So breast milk is also very low in iron, and again, this is an area of contention, especially in lactation communities, because we never want mothers to think that breast milk isn't optimal. It certainly is, but it is lower in iron and that iron has a higher bioavailability, but it is not enough to meet infants' needs. Now, luckily, infants accumulate iron in utero, so they store up enough iron to last them until about four to six months, at which point they need to start getting iron in the diet. It's very clever. Yeah. (laughs) Nature is very smart. (laughs) So, well, I mean, that kind of makes sense then. Like, if you're saying that the breast milk's low in it, (laughs) so clearly there's something else going on that makes sense that 
you know, physiologically before mm-hmm. pregnancy, they're, they're, they're accumulating that. Yeah. Almost in anticipation of having a period with low amounts coming mm-hmm. through the diet. I mean, some of the proposed theories are that iron actually has, can promote infectious microbial species like being able to persist in, in milk and an infant's digestive tract. So that's why it's very low to, to prevent that okay. for, the, for the immune prop. So you're saying um, compared to, say, a formula, a formula will have vitamin D in it, right? So a formula, yeah, it has vitamin it D, have... it has iron, it cool. has everything. Cool. So the reason I bring up iron is because while stores dwindle between four and six months, the American Academy of Pediatrics and other groups have recently started saying that solid introduction and the introduction of solid foods shouldn't actually begin until about six months. So that leaves infants, depending on how much iron they stored up in utero, with a period of about two months where they potentially have iron stores and or low iron stores. And for that reason, the American Academy of Pediatrics now recommends that all exclusively breastfed infants receive a daily iron supplement from four to six months. There you go. Until they start getting Because that's changed a little bit. So that four to Mm -hmm. six month, you know, it seems to differ a little bit around the world, but you're saying so most recent advice is six months. Yeah. So previously it was recommended to start at four months. Even before that, I don't know if it was recommended, but people did start even earlier, two, three months. There's the old myth that adding baby cereal to milk will help the infant sleep longer at night. That's Mm -hmm. a complete myth. And we've actually seen higher rates of intestinal complications as well as things like type 1 diabetes when kids start getting food too early. Their digestive systems just aren't fully developed. And then their motor skills are not developed enough to actually handle solid food. So that's why they changed it to six months. But then that kind of causes this conundrum of where are they going to get their iron Mm, then? Gap. That little gap. So- for breast, exclusively breastfed babies, especially babies that were preterm or that had a very rapid weight growth or a very rapid growth in the early yeah. months, they are more at risk of having low sure. iron stores as well as if you did not do delayed cord clamping um, during during your birth. That's another thing. Delayed cord clamping can increase iron stores. So all of yeah. these factors are going to contribute to whether or not your baby's iron stores are going to carry them over to when they start solid foods. The sort of best practice is if you're exclusively breastfeeding to supplement vitamin D from day one and at four to six months supplement iron and you're continuing vitamin D until you're introducing foods. And at that point, you can stop supplementing the iron. Correct. But you continue with vitamin D. Correct. Well, if you're plant-based. If you're plant-based, you continue yes. with vitamin D. Different story if they're if they're if they've jumped over to formula, which has vitamin D and iron in it. Correct. Correct. Cool. Yeah. And then the majority of the other nutrients will be transferred in the mother's breast milk, provided that she has a nutritionally adequate diet. So one nutrient I want to point out there, which I actually should have brought up earlier in pregnancy, is is B12. B12, I, I think we talked about the absorption earlier, perhaps... The absorption of B12 is very low. So you need much more than the RDA to actually meet your needs. So plant-based dieters should be taking in a minimum of 25 micrograms a day within their prenatal in order to make sure they have adequate amounts of it to transfer through the breast milk. 
and transfer to the fetus during pregnancy. And a lot of multivitamins and prenatal vitamins do not have that high of amount. So we definitely recommend that mothers take a separate individual B12 supplement if their multivitamin is not Mm, that high. That's a good point. Because, I mean, the multivitamins and prenatals are not necessarily geared towards someone who's consuming a plant-based diet. Right. I've spoken about that before in terms of B12, the absorption rate. I think it's limited by something called intrinsic factor or something complex, but <laughs> people don't need to worry about that. Yeah. But if you're buying any any sort of exclusive B12 supplement, yeah. they tend to all be over 25 micrograms. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are... Um, 200, 250. And again, you're only absorbing a small amount of that. Right, right. And it's a water-soluble vitamin. There's no upper tolerable level. So you're you're safe with however much you take. (laughs) Cool. Um, So that's kind of, I guess, the the differences from a nutrient point of view between Mm -hmm. the formula and breast milk. Now, within the context of formula, there are different options on the market What's the best way to navigate that and what what's your sort of advice there? Mm-hmm. So the main decision you're going to have to make is whether you're going with a dairy-based formula or a soy-based formula. There are um, a couple, maybe one or two now formulas on the market that are made with pea protein, but there really isn't any established guidelines on them yet. So the, the main choices are soy yeah. and dairy. The good news is that studies show similar rates of growth, energy intake, and bone mineralization with babies that are fed either cow's milk or soy milk. So whichever one you go with, your baby is going to get all of the nutrients they need and grow grow adequately. Uh, which is the most important thing right which is now, the most what we're important. talking about. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So then you can get into the intricacies of the different types of formulas, what types of sugars they use, what types of oils they use. And that is a conversation, I think, for another day. But generally, we recommend an organic formula and one with, with minimal minimal additives. Most plant-based parents are immediately going to choose a soy formula just because that's what meets mm. their requirements ethically and morally. But I do know some plant-based parents who have chosen cow's milk over soy milk formula because of the fact that the main, uh, one of the main nutrients, the main sugar that is found in, in milk, whether it's cow's milk or breast milk, is lactose. And that really can't be replicated. So in a soy formula, instead of using lactose, they use things like corn syrup or brown rice syrup. The long-term implications of that are are unknown. Again, I said that the rates of growth, energy intake, bone mineralization, these are all the same. But for some parents, you know, we talked about highly processed foods before. It just doesn't sit well with them. So So that's a personal It's 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 just a personal decision Um, right there. You mentioned, I know you you corrected yourself there, but it's a a good point. We're talking about formula. Yeah. And at at no stage, uh, soy milk or or cow's milk Correct. replaces this. Yeah. So that's a very important thing to note is that before 12 months of age, the only appropriate beverages for children are uh, breast milk or a formula. Yeah. You should never Take give cow's message. milk, never give plant, plant milks before the age of 12 months. I do want to note that there are two indications in which soy formula would not be appropriate. One of those is for preterm infants. 
despite a normal normal bone mineralization with healthy full-term infants consuming soy formula, preterm infants have shown to have an increased risk of osteopenia. And they're not sure exactly why this happens. One of the proposed mechanisms is that the soy plant actually uptakes aluminum from the soil. Aluminum is not a necessary mineral for, for growth in any, in any way for the human body. However, the amounts of aluminum that are in soy formula have been shown to fall below safety limits. But what's believed to happen is that preterm infants, their kidneys aren't mature enough to filter out the aluminum and an aluminum can inhibit calcium absorption. So that's potentially what's what's causing um, bone mineralization. The second group is infants with congenital hypothyroidism who have to be on medication for this condition, phytates, which are absorption inhibitors found in soy, which aren't a problem for adults or children eating normal diets and using techniques to overcome these absorption inhibitors. But for infants with congenital hypothyroidism, these phytates can inhibit the absorption of their medication. Um, The AAP does note that taking more medication can overcome this. But again, that's something that parents will just, would just have to decide for themselves. Okay, cool. So to sort of summarize that, you're saying, I mean, the choice is rather personal. There's soy, there's dairy for those that do not um, or can't breastfeed and don't have access to donor milk. And then to look out for formulas that are ideally organic, don't have too many artificial ingredients, the DHA mm-hmm. you mentioned before that that some are, are now fortified would be good. Yes, most most are. Yeah, um, and we covered off on the the fact that if you're exclusively breastfeeding, just to pay attention to vitamin D uh, from the start and iron from four to six months, and to take your prenatal or postnatal vitamin. Most women just continue to take their prenatal vitamin. Cool. All right, that <laughs> kind of brings us up to. When the the little one uh, is is ready to start introducing solids, so yes. talk me through that. We're we're at that sort of six month mark. Yeah, what does that look like? Yeah, so there are two different routes to go when introducing solids. There's the traditional option of providing purees via spoon feeding, and then there is newer option in at least newer in the U.S. It started. Um, maybe in Australia or New Zealand. Okay. New Zealand. I have. I've heard my, my yeah, mom talk about this. And it's this. called baby led weaning. Yeah. And baby led weaning is essentially giving baby solid foods right from the start. So skipping purees, skipping food feeding, uh, spoon feeding, and providing age and texture appropriate foods that the baby can pick up and feed himself. And so both of those should start around six months. You should talk to your pediatrician about when is ideal for your baby. But we we have, my partner and I, Alex, both did baby led weaning with our sons and we, we recommend it for others. That said, we don't think it needs to be done exclusively. If you want to do a combination of spoon feeding and baby led weaning, you absolutely can. There's no research showing that providing purees via spoon is going to get in the way of baby led weaning. But one of the reasons that you may want to try baby led weaning is some of the potential benefits. So the research is is just emerging in this field. But some of the things that we're seeing is potentially increased motor skills uh, because the babies are actually using their hands and, and their mouths to manipulate food in an earlier age. More adventurous eating, baby led weaning babies are typically exposed to a greater variety of flavors mm-hmm. and textures from the very beginning. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, yeah, given that if you're blending everything, that texture is pretty similar. Yeah, time. the texture is similar, um, especially if you're using uh, store-bought purees. The diversity of them is not very great. It's often like one or two foods. Yeah, so it it, it results in, in a wider exposure. It's also just beneficial for parents because what people like to talk about with baby led weaning is the fact that babies eat what the families eat. So we'll talk maybe a little bit later about how that is not 100% accurate because babies can't have salt and sugar, which are traditionally in adult meals. But generally, they should be eating a lot of the same types of meals as the rest of the family. So hopefully it's easier on on the parent who's making that food. So what, what are some examples of if you're doing baby led weaning? And, and, and another point, we'll come back to this, but by baby led weaning, um, presuming you're talking about um, you, you're weaning off of breast milk exclusively, but that's still there. Yeah. So this is kind of a misnomer. It, it's, it shouldn't be exactly, weaning isn't, isn't actually the appropriate term. Complementary feeding mm. is because we're complementing their major source of nutrition. So breastfeeding and formula should still provide the majority of energy and nutrients up until about 12 months. It's complementary because there are certain things that we need to start getting from the diet, sure. primarily yeah. iron. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're, you're breastfeeding or donor or infant formula exclusive to six months, but you're making sure you're carrying that through whatever modality it is to 12 months as a minimum. Correct. Yeah. And then that food's coming in at six months, which is complementing that. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about this, the two different methods. You've got the sort of puree food method and then the the baby led baby led weaning baby led baby led complementary feeding, feeding should we change the term <laughs> um, um, what are some examples yeah. of, of that yeah so the most important thing whichever feeding approach that you're choosing is that you're focusing on iron and protein because these are the two nutrients that babies really need at this age other than that you may have heard the term food before one is just for fun. Well, that's partially true. A lot of the food between six months and one, years of eight, one year of age is really intended for exposure. Sure. That's and why that other, the, the main source that, of nutrients yeah. is still coming through. Yeah. And that's why we're, sure. we're still focusing on breast milk and formula. But we really want to make sure. So we want to make sure that we're using these feeding periods to expose them to a wide range of flavors and foods predominantly fruits and vegetables, as those are the things that we're really going to want them to be eating lifelong and to develop an acceptability to. So exposing them early and often to a wide variety of fruits and vegetables is really key. For baby led weaning, this looks like providing different vegetables that are steamed in a form that baby can pick up. So between about six and eight months, babies have what's called a palmer grasp. And that means that they pick up things using their entire palm and hand. So foods need to be in a long stick-like form. So they'll grab it with their palm and they'll gnaw on the end that's coming out of their fist. And anything else they they can't eat, they drop. So can you do that with like broccoli or is that not long enough? So you can do it with broccoli because broccoli actually has a natural handle on it. So you can provide a big hunk of broccoli and they can really just kind of nibble on, on the end. On the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the tree portion, the leaf yeah, portion true. of I mean, the tree. They got small. <laughs> yeah, they have so I'm like trying to remember <laughs> yeah. how big my son's hand was. Probably like this big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, broccoli, you're cutting up butternut squash into long, long strips and you're roasting it or steaming it. You're steaming carrots, 
really anything. Uh, so plant-based juniors, we have our first bites, our guide to baby led weaning for plant-based babies. And it shows you how to make all of these foods in an age and texture appropriate form. So that's your fruits and vegetables. But as I said, that's more of the exposure component there. The biggest nutrient to focus on during this period is really iron. And your major sources of iron in a plant-based diet are things like beans and whole grains and soy foods, nuts and seeds. Babies can't really pick up any of those, (laughs) not with their whole palm. Yeah. So you have to get a little bit creative. So with these things, I mean, tofu is the one, the one thing that's a little bit easier. You can definitely cut that into a nice little strip. But with our beans and our grains, we're, we're taking those, we're making them into patties, we're making them into yeah, muffins, nice. things that babies can Something pick up. Something they, they can make use of. Yeah. That gets me thinking those foods tend to be good sources of fiber. Uh, yes. Which is obviously great. It's a great nutrient, but too much of it could potentially reduce appetite, which I consider to be problematic for a child that's growing, right? Or potentially for some children. Yes. So how do you sort of monitor, I guess, fiber intake and and making sure that the very small stomach's not filling up too quickly and they're not getting enough calories? Yeah. So this is um, one of the main ways that a baby's plant-based diet and an adult's plant-based diet differs. For adults, like you said, we really want a high fiber intake. It reduces the risk of numerous chronic diseases and helps to manage healthy weight. But in babies, um, they have small appetites and they have tiny stomachs and a very dense diet and low-calorie, fiber-rich plant foods could lead to suboptimal growth if they're not getting in enough enough energy nutrients. So we recommend uh, under the age of two, for one, providing only half of the grains that they receive as whole grains and the other half, half as refined grains. So serving white rice on occasion. My son, for instance, gets a bread that's made with half whole grain flour and half refined wheat flour. And I know this kind of shocks some people who have constantly heard the message, complex carbs, whole grains. But in this in this population, it's really important. And those refined grains are not a useless source of nutrients. They're providing essential energy for Absolutely. these babies I mean, that need the energy for growth. It comes back to fed is best. Exactly. Um, and it's contextual. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're just sticking to whole grains and the child can't eat enough and that's you know, affecting their total calorie intake. Yeah. Then that's, you know, you can't say that that's healthier. No, so right. Got to sort of come back to the context sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are other strategies to reduce fiber too. If, you're, if your baby really isn't growing well um, and you need to get in more nutrients, you can strain fruits and vegetables, remove skins or peels, removing the skins from beans. There's a lot of different techniques, but that's something that is definitely individual. We didn't do those things with our sons, both of our sons, um, very sure. optimal growth. And I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I'm, I'm just thinking in my head, what if, you know, parents, they're plant-based, they plan to have a plant-based kid, but, you know, for some reason at that six-month mark, they're very picky, they're not eating these foods, like, and I'm sure you probably get messages that I'm thinking of adding in fish or whatever it is, these calorie-dense animal products, What's your response? Do you ever get that? I haven't gotten that specifically. We get a lot of questions about picky eating and and kids not eating enough. Under the age of 12 months, I would say take comfort in the fact that they're still getting the majority of their nutrition, again, from that formula or that breast milk. Um, And then I'd say to seek out a 
pediatric dietitian and preferably a plant-based pediatric dietitian who's going to be well-versed in this. Picky eating is not necessarily going to change because you add animal products. Your child might not like those either. So it's, it's really about working on the behaviors versus the actual foods. Gotcha. Yeah. But that said, if, you know, there are certain populations that, that maybe a strict plant-based diet doesn't work for. And there are children with allergies who can't consume soy. Or food security. Yeah, there's a lot of different issues that come into play. Alex and I, we advocate a predominantly plant-based approach. We were all-inclusive. All forms of plant-based eating are beneficial for your health, for the health of the planet. We meet people where they're at. If you can't have a fully plant-based diet, if you don't want a fully plant-based diet, if your kid needs to consume things, then you know, work around it. Yeah. You just do your best. Yeah. We're all doing our best. <laughs> cool. Okay. So that's the introduction of food and yes. two different sort of methods where we're, where we're looking at giving food to children to help them explore. The main source of nutrition is still coming from the mm-hmm. formula of breast milk, concentrating on foods rich in protein and iron. And to add to that, making sure to include a source of vitamin C for optimal iron absorption. So iron from a plant-based diet has a lower bioavailability. Some estimates say that plant-based dieters need 1.8 times the amount of an omnivorous dieter, but those studies really don't take into account optimal absorption. So pairing sources of iron with a source of vitamin C can increase the absorption by three to six times. So that looks like pairing your tofu with some marinara sauce, adding a squeeze of lemon juice to your bean patties. We have an awesome baby led weaning muffin recipe on our website that includes chickpeas and kale. So making sure that you are optimizing iron bioavailability. Cool. Another question that's just come to to mind is, I mean, there are a lot of sort of popular food brands for for kids that are that six to twelve and even toddler age group. How do you how do you pick and choose between those? And when you're looking at labels, you know, are some of those helpful for for adding into the diet in addition to the sort of whole foods we're talking about with mm-hmm. the carrots and broccoli and things like that? Yeah, some of some of them can be helpful for convenience. Generally, we're recommending that parents stick to whole foods as much as possible, especially for the 6 to 12 month range sure. and even the under 2 range because under the age of 2, baby's kidneys aren't fully developed and they're they're not equipped to handle large amounts of sodium or really much sodium at all. The the sodium limit and recommendations varies by country and is not well established. They don't even include it in the dietary guidelines. The message is pretty much the less sodium, the better. And the same really goes for sugar. The AAP recommends no sugar for children under the age of two. So anytime you buy processed food, it's going to have both of those in there, like period. Even the healthiest whole grain bread on the market has at least one or two grams of sugar yeah. in it. So it's not completely avoidable. Again, I told you my son gets gets bread every day and it has a couple grams of sugar and you know, I let it I let it slide. But generally the more packaged foods you're providing, the more it's going they're going to have those types of things in it that we want want to avoid. So those are the main two things that I say to look for on a label as low as possible with sugar and sodium. Low for sugar would be no more than 1 or 2 grams. Um per serve. 
preserving. Yeah. yeah. And, and sodium really just as minimal as possible. I, the recommendation is, re- I think, I believe it's no sodium before 12 months. And then, and again, this differs depending on, on the, the group that set the recommendation, but between 12 and 12 months and two years old, I believe it's 800 okay. milligrams, which is about a third of a teaspoon. Which is a okay. very low. So eight hundred milligrams is for a day or per day. Per day. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So how do things sort of progress from a food point of view, nutrition point of view, whether it's a supplement point of view, from this uh, baby led weaning stage mm-hmm. to post twelve months? Mm-hmm. So I talked about the Palmer grasp. So with the way that babies actually eat around eight to 10 months, they develop what's called a pincher grasp. So they can actually pick things up between their thumb and their forefinger, which will make providing family meals a lot easier. You don't actually have to manipulate them into a form that baby can pick up. And more and more, they'll start to to eat the foods the family is eating. Nutrition-wise, Iron remains a very important nutrient as well as as protein. And and that doesn't change, although iron needs actually do drop once babies turn one years old. So I don't like to say that you don't have to pay as much attention, but you don't have to worry as much, perhaps. If you if you were supplementing your baby with, say, an iron-fortified baby cereal between six and 12 months, you may not need to continue doing that after 12 months. And actually, that's something I, I want to talk about quickly. Baby cereals get a really bad rap. People say that they're highly processed and that they're unnecessary. And we find that they're a very helpful component of the diet, especially for our plant-based babies and baby-led weaners. They're a concentrated source of iron. And there's many brands out there that are simply made with with oats Mm. that have basically been ground up and have some iron in there. So adding in iron through a, a baby cereal like that around six months is a really great, easy, affordable way to meet, to sure. meet iron needs. And that can be added to oatmeal. It can be added to those bean patties. Cool. It's recommended. Beautiful. And that's actually even recommended for omnivorous diets because contrary to popular belief, even the iron in some of these baby foods, there's only about one milligram in an entire baby food, beef baby food yeah. container. And most babies aren't eating more than a couple, maybe three of those a day, at least in the beginning. Yet iron needs are 11 milligrams a day from six to 12 months. And an entire thing of beef has Mm, one milligram. There you go. It's a huge nutrient gap. And that's why things like iron fortified baby cereal are really, really important, I think, to include in the diet of all children. Okay. That's good to know. Back to nutrient needs. So at 12 months is, 12 months is the recommended amount by the American American Academy of Pediatrics for breastfeeding. They recommend exclusive breastfeeding in six months and then continued breastfeeding to 12 months if you can. The World Health Organization, however, recommends breastfeeding up until two years. And the way they state it is, and longer if possible. Sure. So some kind of vague, Basically vague messaging like as that. Long as, as long as it works for you and yeah. your infant. Um, there isn't a ton of research on extended breastfeeding, but the research on breastfeeding before 12 months shows that the longer the better. So it would, we would assume that the benefits persist. And 
historically, and in some tribal communities, people, women have breastfed even up to six years of age. The average age of weaning historically and globally is about two to three years. Six so. years. So that's, they're obviously having another child in between. Mm-hmm. That's why their supply yeah. is continuing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's very rare. I don't know if anyone does that these days. This is in reports of, of, of historical. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, but moral of the story, you're saying... If, you're if it's working for you and your baby, continue sure. doing it. It's the best. It's the best source of, yeah. of nutrition, with provided that you are decreasing slightly to two to three times a day and providing them with three meals a day and two snacks a day. Sure. So the progression is around six months. You start with about one meal a day. Probably about nine months, you'll move up to providing two meals a day, and then by twelve months, you're providing three meals a day and possibly two snacks. That's that's the goal to get to with breast milk or formula intertwined. Um, around 12 months, you can stop formula and kids can be provided with either cow's milk or a plant-based milk alternative. Gotcha. Neither is biologically necessary, but both are convenient, compacted sources of many essential nutrients. Okay, so what's coming to mind for me, uh, as I sort of think through that, is that we're getting, we're working towards this goal of, as you said, three meals a day, a couple of snacks with or without formula or breast milk. But there could be some, I guess, quite a big discrepancy, I guess, in, in cal- overall calories there. Um, and I'm sure people are not counting calories, but how do you sort of gauge whether your child, I guess, from a growth point of view is, you know, normal, normal, mm-hmm. meeting these developmental goals mm-hmm. how do how do we know uh, you know personally when i look at a kid i see a kid with some rolls and you know chubby and i think <laughs> oh very healthy but is that healthy how do we sort of gauge that yeah so normal weight and height is has a very very wide range what's normal for one child uh, may not be normal for another we base it on growth charts. So under the age of two, we have height and weight growth charts. And anywhere from 5% even to the 95th percentile is considered normal, provided that a child is staying on their their growth, their growth trajectory. So when you know that there's a problem either with undereating or overeating, or I shouldn't say eating because it's not always tied into eating. If there's a problem, an underweight or a problem with too quick of growth, usually these are related to some sort of health condition. And you will know this because they'll start jumping into different percentile categories. So provided your child, even if they're at a very high or a very low percentile, is maintaining their growth trajectory, they're doing fine. They're healthy. And when it comes to how much they eat, I know three meals and two snacks a day can can sound like a lot. It, it is frequent. It's every two to three hours. Babies need a lot of energy to fuel their growth. But we really want to let them lead the way when it comes to their portion size and how much they eat. So we subscribe to a approach known as the division of responsibility. This was set forth by Ellen Satter. She's a dietitian who specializes in, in feeding children. And what the division of responsibility does is it outlines a parent's responsibility and a child's responsibility when it comes to eating. Parents are responsible for the what, 
and the when. So they decide what we're, what we're serving and when we're serving it. And children are responsible for deciding if they want to eat and how much they want to eat. And really, that's all. You know, there are general guidelines about the appropriate portion size, maybe to start with, with an infant at six months, two tablespoons, three tablespoons is normal. But Children have a wide range of what's normal. One child may eat a very small amount. One may eat a large amount. They may be the same size and the opposite may be true. So you really want to let your child be the guide. Mm. It's always better to start with smaller portions and then to refill if they want more than it is to place a large amount in front of children. What research actually shows is that the more you pressure kids to eat, the less they eat and the less they weigh. The more you try to restrict kids, the more they want to eat and the more they end up weighing. So it really backfires. The key to infant feeding is exposure, continuing to offer and removing, removing any pressure, keeping a positive atmosphere. So if they're picky and they're not eating as much as you'd like, Mm -hmm. not just taking that away, keep continuing to show that food up. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in that early feeding range and like right when you're starting solids around six months, exposure and continued exposure to foods is key. So studies have shown it can take up to 15 times of seeing um, or even tasting the same food before the child will regularly accept it. Persistence. So yeah, just persistence. Persistence without pressure. Gotcha. We just coined a good term right there. That could be never, never, that never, could be like a subtitle within one of your channels. I like it. I might include yeah. it. But yeah, so you're providing that broccoli, but you're not saying you have to eat that broccoli. You're not saying, mm, isn't that broccoli good? Even positive pressure can yeah. is pressure. So you're simply putting it on their plate. So it's a and hands-off them approach. To, exactly. It's a baby-led approach. There we go. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of dealing with, I guess, picky eaters as well and encouraging kids without actually encouraging them, but, mm-hmm. but encouraging them through the, the what and when. Exactly. Oh, another thing is, is getting them involved in their nutrition. And that this comes a little bit at an, at an older age. You're not going to do this with a six-month-old six baby, but allowing them to select foods at the grocery store, getting them in the kitchen and cooking with you. I just bought this thing called a kitchen helper, which is essentially like a stool that's enclosed that your child can stand on and reach the the counter and get up there and cook with you. So Make it fun. making them part of the process and making it fun. Yeah. Taking them to the market with you. And you can do that. Yeah, that's cool. With Just, infants. You know, and that's a learning experience in mm-hmm. itself and seeing where it comes from. Yeah. Tell me, we 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 mentioned before that that dairy, just straight up milk and um, any form of plant-based milk is not appropriate for substituting for formula or breast milk. What happens after the first year? Can what 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 are the what's the the beverages of choice? Talk me through water, plant-based milks, things like that. Sure. So after 12 months, if you're breastfeeding and you want to continue, you continue as as I said. And then parents have a decision whether to transition to cow's milk or plant-based milk. There's no need to continue with formula after 12 months of age. Um, the recommended amount is to be getting about 12 to 16 ounces of milk a day. Again, because I said it is a condensed, uh, convenient source of nutrients. So again, you you potentially could have a diet where you don't provide either, but you'd be really hard pressed to meet children's uh, calcium needs specifically. Protein, 
probably meet other places in the diet, vitamin D, you could supplement, but really calcium, I think is the main benefit of, of either cow's milk or a plant-based milk alternative. That said, plant-based milk alternatives and cow's milk also provide protein and fat and energy and other nutrients that kids need. So if you're choosing between the two, when you're choosing a plant-based milk, for instance, you really want to only choose soy or pea. We hear there's so many different plant-based milks out there on the market with almond and coconut mm. and cashew, oat. Macadamia. Macadamia. I feel like you hear of a new, mm. new nut that they can bring yeah, into yeah. a milk every day. Walnut. Pecan. <laughs> Cheap I'll say seeds. Pecan. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and really, none of these are nutritionally adequate for children. Um, the thing is, when we're providing another another milk, we're trying to find something that is the most nutritionally comparable to cow's milk, essentially. So it needs to be high in protein. It needs to be higher in fat. If you provide something like almond milk, it's very low in protein. It's very low in fat and it's very low in calories, but it's got a large volume. So it's similar to the fiber issue. Babies have small stomachs. If you're giving them eight 16 ounces of these fluids that really are don't, nutrition, have nutrition. don't have any nutrition yeah. in them, you're displacing other important nutrients. I mean, almond milk, many of the brands are almost are very much just water. They really are. There's, yeah. there's, some, there's a little tiny bit of nutrition in there, yeah. but you wouldn't want to be using that as a drink that is providing a whole lot of nutrition or thinking right. that it is. Right. Um, okay, cool. So pea or soy, you're che- or soy. checking the label for fortification with like calcium. Correct. It should be fortified with calcium. It should be fortified with vitamin D. And some of them do fortify with B12. The main thing that we're wanting to derive from this beverage is that protein, that fat, and then primarily the calcium. Gotcha. Uh, we recommend that past the age of 12 months, if you're no longer getting these nutrients from your mother's breast milk, or you won't be get the child won't be getting it from formula anymore. That uh, that the child is then supplemented with vitamin D. Well, actually, they they would have already started vitamin D supplementation if they're exclusively breastfed. But formula fed babies who are then going sure. onto a plant based diet should be supplemented with vitamin D. They should receive their own B twelve supplement, and they should also receive an iodine supplement. Um, And we recommend those supplements, even though vitamin D may be found in your plant milk, maybe you do get the plant milk with B12, because fortification processes vary and intake varies from day to day. So the safest, most reliable option is to actually give them a supplement versus trying to get it from fortified foods. It's interesting. We didn't talk too much about iodine before, but iodine is a critical nutrient for metabolism, for healthy thyroid functioning. And it's included in prenatals and your postnatals. So pregnant moms will be getting it there. Lactating moms will be getting it there and then transferring it to their baby. But once they stop getting breast milk, babies will not have a very adequate source of iodine. Iodine is found in the soil, but it varies widely in plant-based sources. So it's really not that reliable, which is why most governments started iodizing salt. Sure, but we're not giving the kids salt. Yeah, we're trying not to give the kids (laughs) salt for one. And then for two, especially in more health-conscious communities, there's been this belief that Specialty salts like pink Himalayan salt um, or sea salt are healthier. And so people will switch to them and they are not iodized. So, and then the next source of of iodine is seafood. So plant-based dieters are not eating seafood. A lot of them are very health conscious. They're not consuming iodized salt. 
processed foods, the salt in the processed foods is not usually iodized because it's more expensive mm. to do that. So company, and they're not required to. Yeah, and um, the seaweeds are and variable. Exactly. So, okay. Sounds so like you're already well-versed on So there's this, a so. supplement there. I mean, something that we, we spoke about folate before, but mm-hmm. also same thing, government brought in folate fortification in bread. Right. For for similar reason, um, just from a population level of, you know, not enough, the average person not getting enough folate. Right. So like fortification in the food system is not anything new. It's right. been around. Right. Yeah. So those are the main considerations for children. And then there's the potential to con- to give them a DHA supplement as well. We know that um, DHA accumulation in the brain does continue through the first two years of age. There aren't a lot of studies on normal, healthy children and DHA supplementation. There have been some benefits shown in children with certain cognitive issues like ADHD. And in preterm infants, there have been beneficial results in supplementing DHA, but it's debatable whether whether there are extended benefits for normal healthy uh, children. Sure. So there's no recommendation to provide it. We think it can't hurt. We both pr- we both provide DHA to our, gotcha. our sons as well. Again, yeah. because they're not getting it through their diet and the conversion rate from ALA is low. Okay, so let's bring this back to beverages. So we, we spoke about the plant-based milks. What about water? Where does where does water come in? What's the role? What's the, the sort of importance of water and at what time? Mm-hmm. You can begin providing your baby with water at about six months when solids are introduced. And this is partially just, again, for exposure, teaching them how to drink water, getting them used to the taste. Um, you definitely don't want it to displace formula or breast milk. So the recommendation is to offer about an ounce or two with meals. And parents can do this in an open cup. You know, this sounds a little bit crazy giving a little tiny baby an open cup. They're going to drop on themselves. But the earlier the earlier you start, the better. There's no harm in, in doing it. So providing it kind of for practice at that age, a little bit of water can help with constipation too, If especially with that higher fiber intake that plant-based kids have. It's at about one year of age that kids will want to start regularly incorporating water. And so just making water available at all times, getting your baby a little glass straw cup or or stainless steel bottle and having them keep it with them throughout the day. Toddlers need about two to four cups of water per day is the recommendation. Sure. And then as as we're sort of progressing through that first year, you're just increasing volume. Mm-hmm. based on what they're eating, as you said, putting it out, putting it in front of them mm-hmm. and letting them decide how much they're going to eat. Exactly. Yeah. And continuing to provide new foods, try not to get in a rut of only providing the same things that they like. Is there any plant foods again? to avoid, like the straight out that you wouldn't suggest eating in the first couple of years? Yeah. There's really no plant foods to avoid, just anything that's a choking hazard. So anything that you wouldn't provide on on any any type of diet, sure. hard foods, popcorn, round foods that can get lodged in the esophagus, like grapes, cherry tomatoes, vegan sausages offered yeah. in cubes. All of these things need to be cut 
Um, what about nuts and nut butters, like peanuts and allergies? And what's the yeah. latest on that? So the old belief was that you should delay the introduction of allergens like peanuts and, and eggs and other things until about two to three years of age in order to reduce the risk of allergy. And there's been a complete flip-flop on that. New research has shown that early introduction is actually key to reducing the risk of allergy. Gotcha. So depending on your infant's allergy risk would depend on the exact month that they recommend introducing peanuts. So for very high-risk very high risk infants, and this is defined as those with severe eczema or other food allergies, they actually recommend uh, introducing peanuts between four and six months of age. And this should be medically supervised done at your pediatrician's office. For kids that are at a moderate risk or a low risk of, of allergy, and this would be defined as babies with no eczema, no other allergies, or only mild or moderate eczema, the recommendation is to introduce around six months of age. And there's not as much research on the other top allergens, but it's likely that there's a similar effect. So we recommend trying to introduce all of the all of the eight most common allergens within the like starting at six months and regularly providing them. Now I'm going to double back here. It's just because this is a lot of this knowledge is just it's really incredible to hear and it's going to it's so helpful for people. I've just thought of something else. You mentioned before the importance of fat in the plant-based milks mm-hmm. and the the soy or, or the pea in some markets where you can get that being the better options mm-hmm. to, to provide that and the other nutrients. And that gets me thinking about the importance of fat. We've mentioned a couple of times about how some of the requirements as a child different to an adult. Talk to me about fat, why it's really important for the developing body and what are the best sources, particularly from a fat point of view, from a food point of view, to be introducing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fat is a critical nutrient for babies. It makes up 44% of breast milk. And as you just said, this is one of the key differences, again, between proper adult nutrition and proper children's nutrition. Uh, toddlers should be getting 30 to 40% of their calories from fat. And this is one of the things I think that really needs to be hammered home in the plant-based community, especially to those people who practice a low-fat whole foods plant-based diet is that kids need this fat and plants are naturally low. Most plants are naturally low in fat. So you need to be conscious and figuring out ways to get this worked in throughout the day, especially after 12 months when they're not getting as much fat from the formula or the breast milk. Again, which is another reason why I like we, we like people to continue offering some sort of milk or milk alternative. Fat is essential for energy. It's essential for brain growth, for the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. It provides structure to all the cells in the body, and it makes hormones to fight infection and disease. So just wide, widespread benefits. <laughs> you need fat. Yeah. Your babies need fat. So where are, we, where are we going to? What are the, what are the go-to sources? So our go-to sources, number one is avocado. Avocado is so easy to do with baby lead weaning, too. You slice it into little strips. It can be a little slippery. So uh, a good trick is to roll it in some hemp seeds or some wheat germ to get grip. Yeah, get some grip on there. Nut butters, although nut butters can be a choking hazard for younger children. So you don't want to give big globs of nut butters. You want to spread it thinly on a piece of bread. And as they get older, they can tolerate bigger amounts. But for your like six-month-old infant, it should be a very thin smear. Nuts are not appropriate, whole nuts, until about four when kids can actually chew them proficiently and 
they're no longer so a nut butters, hazard. but go easy on it. Not butters, so. but go easy on it at least when they're younger and and, a, and could choke on it. Sure. But when they're older, and and there's other ways to offer them. So you could blend mix it. a nut butter into their oatmeal. You yeah. could blend it. You could use it in a sauce. Um, sure. There's so when you say when they're older, when does that choking hazard sort of reduce it's the a, likelihood? It really depends on the child. I'd say probably by 12 months they gotcha. should be able to to handle a little bit more than a thin smear. Yeah, okay. but it's really going to depend on your baby and their and their motor skills. Let's say seeds. Seeds are an awesome source of of healthy fats, especially ALA, the omega three plant based um, omega three. I include chia seeds and hemp seeds in my son's oatmeal every morning. Again, you can use those to roll avocados in, roll bananas in. Really toss them in everything. We have them in different ball recipes, different meatball recipes, little like bars. Seeds are are a key component, I think, of all diets. They should be. Yeah, <laughs> um, sesame seeds, great source of calcium. Sesame seeds, yep. Tahini we offer yeah. regularly. Hummus. These are all g- great ways to get some fat in the diet. And then vegetable oils. So we we recommend that parents roast their vegetables in, in oil, saute things in olive oil and avocado oil. It's a really easy, concentrated source of calories and fat. Beautiful. Okay, wow. We've covered some real territory there. So I will definitely provide some links to some of your resources that, that summarizes all of this for, yeah. for people to sort of make sense of. And that, yeah, I want to say we have, um, it does sound like a lot of information, but we have created something called the PB3 plate. And that really breaks down all of these nutritional needs into an easy visual guide where parents are just selecting foods and where they go on the plate instead of having to be so hyper-focused on the exact nutrient content. Yeah. What's your, I mean, through your community, because you've got a very big community, you're speaking with a lot of, a lot of mothers, no doubt, directly. Like what's, what's their experience like? Are you finding that people do pick up this information quite easily? Yeah, we, we really are. You know, there are some some things that take a little bit more education. The plant milk one th- seems to stump people a lot. But in general, uh, we're finding that our, our community is easily, easily amenable to this information and, and applying it really well and excited about it. I think parents that care about nutrition are also excited about cooking and figuring out how to meet their kids' nutrient needs. Definitely. What would your advice be to, to someone who is feeding their child a plant-based diet and they have, whether it's doctors or other health professionals around them who are skeptical and and are either, you know, passing comments or they're telling them that they're doing things the wrong way. What would you advise someone in that situation to do, whether it's to, you know, how they would respond or, mm-hmm. you know, how would you navigate that situation? We tell parents to fight fear with facts. Bottom line, if someone's coming at you and whether it, whether it be a well-intentioned family member or your pediatrician with claims about plant-based diets, educate them. A lot of these people don't know and they're scared because they've heard these, these headlines out there. They, they just don't know. And so if you are armed with the information, you can easily, easily combat some of these claims. We actually have a blog post on this topic for how to talk to your OBGYN about your plant-based pregnancy. Um, And I believe we have a YouTube video that's coming out on it soon. Beautiful. Yeah. So 
it's arming yourself with the facts. Obviously, uh, your resource is, is hugely beneficial. Are there any other books or things in the market currently, for anyone who's listening that might be pregnant or whatnot and wants to deep dive into this a bit more? Yeah. We recommend the Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group's website. They've got a ton of free resources on their site for children and pregnant women, different fact sheets, breaking down nutrients and the best sources. So that's a really great, great place to find information. Um, Veganhealth.org is written by a fellow dietitian, Jack Norris. And you want to talk about a deep dive? Mm, he's mean, a wealth of knowledge. Have you seen this? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's not the, if he, I have any he, question, he, I know he's answered it. Most absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, um, if, you, if, you, if you really want to get to the bottom of something, mm-hmm. head there, veganhealth.org. Yes, highly recommend that. And then on, on Instagram, we really like Dr. Yami at the Dr. Yami. She is a vegan PD. I don't know if she's vegan, but she has a veggie doctor radio podcast. And then um, Dr. Jackie Busey at the plant-based pediatrician are both a wealth of information for, for plant-based parents. Awesome. I will put all of that into <laughs> the show notes. So let's, let's leave this with a parting message. If if someone listening is intrigued by a plant-based lifestyle, they're looking to have kids and raise a family, why would you encourage them to, to dig a bit deeper into this information and potentially change the way that they're eating a way that is different to what the majority of people in society are doing? Yeah, I'd say the overwhelming research supporting a plant-based diet for adults for reduced chronic disease, for potential longevity benefits, suggests that this type of dietary pattern is the way to go starting earlier in life. We know that uh, food preferences and we know that disease risk starts early in life. So why wouldn't you start providing your child as soon as possible with nutrition that we know leads to health and longevity? And All governmental bodies in the U.S. and many worldwide advocate a plant-based diet for kids as safe, nutritionally adequate, and potentially beneficial. And it tastes good. Beautiful. (laughs) Now, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, You can find us at Plant Based Juniors on Instagram, plantbasedjuniors.com. Those are the main main spots. We have a Plant Based Juniors YouTube channel, and we should have a book coming out in May 2021. Incredible. I'll have to have you and Alex back on after the book comes we out. We would love to. We can <laughs> chat about everything else. We could probably chat for another two hours. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for your you. time. Thanks for uh, having me. You're a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate the information that you're putting out. This one's been a long time coming, but super helpful. Keep doing what you're doing and look forward to reading your book. Same to you, Simon. <laughs> so there we go, friends. Wow. A lot of information, but fortunately, as I said at the start, it has been summarized into two ebooks on the Plant Based Juniors website, which I will provide links to in the show notes. And although it really does sound like a lot of information, it's actually not that crazy. Once you sit down and read the information, you can create a very simple plan for the current stage that you're in with your pregnancy or, or baby, and perhaps a, a little pre reading for the stage ahead. You don't need to, to read about all stages at once unless you really want to. The, the information will really become second nature when you're in that phase of your life and 
and able to use it practically day to day. And for anyone that has an infant or toddler, another great resource that I highly recommend to help summarize everything from this episode is downloading the PB3 plate that Whitney mentioned from the Plant Based Juniors website and putting this onto your fridge. So that is free to download from their website. Plate is super easy to understand with sections for legumes, nuts and seeds, grains, starches, fruits and veggies. And it has little notes to remind you about the importance of calcium containing foods, omega 3 rich foods, iron and vitamin C superstars. And What's great, there's a separate section for fats, which uh, spans all food groups because fats are are found in in all of those food groups. As we spoke about, getting adequate fats is incredibly important for infants and toddlers. It also has the plant-based milk options for kids over 12 months. Remember, that's not a replacement for breast milk or formula in year one. And also a reminder to the side of the plate about a few of the supplements that we spoke about. And of course, it's good peace of mind to remember that this is very much considered a safe and healthy diet for people of all stages. As Whitney rightly stated during our conversation, the American Dietetics Association released a position paper and stated, it is the position of the American Dietetic Association that appropriately planned vegetarian diets, including total vegetarian or vegan diets, are healthful, nutritionally adequate, and may provide health benefits in the prevention and treatment of certain diseases. Well-planned vegetarian diets are appropriate for individuals during all stages of life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, and adolescence, and for athletes. They then go on to say, An evidence-based review showed that vegetarian diets can be nutritionally adequate in pregnancy and result in positive maternal and infant health outcomes. The results of an evidence-based review showed that a vegetarian diet is associated with a lower risk of death from ischemic heart disease. Vegetarians also appear to have lower low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels, lower blood pressure, and lower rates of hypertension and type 2 diabetes than non-vegetarians. Furthermore, vegetarians tend to have a lower body mass index and lower overall cancer rates. Features of a vegetarian diet that may reduce risk of chronic disease include lower intakes of saturated fat and cholesterol and higher intakes of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, soy products, fiber, and phytochemicals. And remember, they're using the word vegetarian, including vegan diets. And for those who are regular listeners, all those things that I just reeled off, the health benefits and the fact that vegetarian diets may reduce chronic disease because they're lower in saturated fat and cholesterol and higher in fiber and and phytochemicals and whole grains, this is stuff that the guests on this show talk about all the time when they're talking about the evidence-based information that we have to make the very best decisions when it comes to our diet. So the take-home message here is, plant-based diet is safe and healthy for pregnant women and their baby. But of course, like any diet, it needs to be appropriately planned. And we discuss this in this episode. Of course, whether that's plant exclusive or plant predominant, that's going to be unique to your situation. The support you have, the food access you have, and 
your overall confidence. There is no one way. There is only the best way for you and your kids. With all of the information, it is then only you that can decide this. With that said, that's all for this one. Please share your feedback on this episode online and and let both Whitney and Alex know how it landed for you by tagging at plant-based juniors. And of course, if you haven't already and can take a spare minute to leave a review for the Plant Proof Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, that would be incredible. It would be greatly appreciated. Coming up in the next few weeks, I sit down with Rich Roll, Dr. Volta Longo, a scientist specializing in aging, and two fellas deeply involved in the regenerative agriculture world. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you feel better for listening and I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Bye for now, friends.